Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Fia Linarduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and I'm joined at the start of what has rather grandly been called the Linarduzzi Dallas era of this podcast by our arts editor, Lucy Dallas. Lucy, hello, and how is this week treating you? Hello, hi. Uh, the week's treating me fine, thank you. Can I just make it clear that it was not me who called it the Lenarduzzi <laughs> Dallas era? I wouldn't dream of being so bold. <laughs> well, look, as we launch into this new era, I think it's probably worth a quick recap on how and why we are where we are, or what we are doing and what you, dear listener, are listening to. This show started four years ago with a very simple premise to pluck two or three pieces from that week's edition of the TLS and to invite the authors of said pieces on to give us the gist and answer some questions. Necessarily, that leaves about 80% of the TLS still to be discovered every week. Pieces we could have chosen for this week's show, for example, include Chris Krause's beautiful pracy of the poet and novelist Fanny Howe and her most recent book, Night Philosophy, which is a, a deeply spiritual work who, uh, whose, as Krause puts it, minor philosophy advocates a replacement of the usual narratives around courage and conquest and discipline and fame with stories of weakness and fluidity and bewilderment. Wouldn't that be truer to life? We could also have chosen to delve into a rereading of Mary McCarthy, a writer our reviewer describes as addicted to the truth, however painful, or indeed, to dip into the fiery world of extreme football fans, where we learn that in the early 1900s, watching football was a classy affair, akin to opera or theatre going. The tone began to change in Uruguay, apparently, in 1905, when the national team hired a new leather worker to inflate the football's during the match. Lucy, have you read this piece? I have, yeah. It was very interesting because there's a there have been a lot of um a few books certainly about supporters of particular teams, haven't there, throughout the world. But this looks mm. at the idea of the fan and not a casual fan, the fanatic. Um mm. the thing I loved about it was when uh, he said that he'd in the book he had interviewed one of the fans, I think in Ukraine. And he said to the guy, do you actually like football? And the guy said, not really. No, I don't even know the names of the players. <laughs> At some level, that's not about football. It's not. It's also um, the, the anecdote there about, you know, where it all started. I mean, the idea that you can kind of pinpoint the start of what we would 
call, you know, this modern day, well, I mean, in some instances, hooliganism, but uh, in other instances, I suppose it is just an extreme devotion to a particular team. But the the job title of of this guy who who joined the national team so his job was to inflate the footballs uh, and that job was called inchador and this one guy prudencio uh, miguel reyes decided to add a new kind of side bit to his role so he would bound ar- around the sidelines encouraging players uh, and fans to you know ramp it up and really kind of get the thing going and initially this elicited a kind of bafflement mm. about, from the crowds and probably players themselves but that's why the spanish word for football super fans is inchas and that's still the word i know because it's interesting that idea that it was like going to the opera and everybody was looking at him thinking what's he doing why, why would he be quiet yeah. <laughs> they're through their monitors <laughs> yes but then it caught on as we know <laughs> as we know it's rather out of control in some instances is there anything else you want to flag in this issue lucy well, there's lots of brilliant because we've got the the a, a focus on sport this week. I I learned lots of things I didn't know. Um, for instance, that there was a the Phantom Olympics. Um, Jordan Sand has a piece about the Phantom Olympics that did not take place. Were supposed to take place in Japan in 1940 and didn't. And that one thing I found fascinating there, which he mentions right at the end, is that about seven years ago, someone suggested that for the Olympics they just it's you choose an unpopulated island and you build everything you need there and you stage it there every time. And then you get rid of all the shenanigans trying to bid for it and then ruining the country's finances by building things, which I thought was a very intriguing idea and clearly has not been taken up. But hasn't, I mean, it's also done wonders for, for countries, hasn't it? I suppose so. I mean, and that's the question, isn't it? I suppose. Yeah. And in some ways it's, it's hugely helped the infrastructure and it is nice. I have to say it is nice when it happens and it goes well. There was another piece about cycling done by our own Jonathan Drummond, which has got just a brilliant line in it. He's talking about... Um, He's, he's re-watching a classic Tour de France, but before that he talks about, about the world of cycling a bit and what you do when all the sport has stopped. And he talks about this uh, a sort of training programme called Watopia, which means you can go out for cycle rides without going out for cycle rides. And he says, I admit, over the past few months, I have spent rather too many hours in the shed in the company of real-world spiders and virtual riders. It's just a brilliant kind of... <laughs> vignette of one person's lockdown and I had a look at Watopia and you can because you put your bike on a sort of stand and so it can do the resistance and it gives you the whole the landscape and other people and you can do a virtual tour de France or you can go around I think the South Downs or you know all sorts of places it's extraordinary is that the future (laughs) if you've got a, a nice a nice shed yeah if any or all of those pieces appeal You could, of course, try out a subscription to the TLS. Here is an offer. Go to the TLS website and use this special offer code, the-tls.co.uk forward slash podcast offer, and you will receive six issues for £5 or $5. And here is what we have in store on this week's show. Minwild has bounded through some of the latest attempts to get to grips with that most slippery of beasts, the history of the novel. Expect a lively cast, Francis Burney, Daniel Defoe, Lawrence Stern, Charlotte Lennox, and some provocative theories. For example, should we just erase the term novel and be done with it? And Declan Ryan comes to us with the story of an 18th century boxer, Daniel Mendoza, from London's East End, the man known as the Fighting Jew, who in a very real sense, punched above his weight. 
How, when, and why did novels start? This, Min Wilde asks pluckily at the start of our lead piece this week, a long and deep and wide excavation of the origins and development of the novel form, a form we are defining as basically, and this is about as concrete as we are prepared to go, a long piece of writing that is probably a story, which isn't true, but might be, or not. You will probably not be surprised then to learn that there are no easy conclusions to that opening line, which isn't to say that we can't have some instructive fun trying some ideas on for size. For that, we need Min Wilde, and I am glad to say she joins us on the line now. Hello, Min. Hello, Thea. Hello. You have reviewed a bunch of what you call clamorous recipe books, which seems a good way of looking at them. They are all in their quite different ways, engaging with the conventional history of the novel. We should say as well that this is a story of the European novel, so we're not going to be jumping over to 11th century Japan in this episode. So I'm just wondering if it might be helpful for you to trot us through that conventional history so that we can then unravel it together. I can certainly do that. So the general idea is that suddenly in 1719, when Daniel Defoe writes Robinson Crusoe, the whole world changes and there's a new way of writing called the novel, which Daniel Defoe started all by himself very cleverly (laughs) in 1719. This is the sort of, you know, the O-level version that's been trotted out for many, many years. But by now, by 2020, obviously we're realising how incredibly much more complicated that story is and and how the whole of Western civilization gets taken into the question of where does the novel start and how does the novel start and what are the most important factors in the start of the novel. The Daniel Defoe explanation seeks to place Robinson Crusoe as a book that comes out of travel narratives, comes out of adventure, adventure stories, and is the first realist novel. So there's a, there's a big tick at the beginning of the story of the novel. The big tick is about when novels start becoming realist. Then you have to start, the whole story of the novel is about categorization. So when you say this word realist, which of course has philosophers, you know, climbing the walls from here to John O'Groat sort of thing, why are they talking about realism? What is realism? The whole story of the novel is about definitions. And what realism is, is usually placed in opposition to what romance is. And so there were lots and lots of long stories that told fibs before Robinson Crusoe tried to do something that sounded a bit truthful. This kind of idea of the novel as something modern that emerged in the 1600s, or in Defoe's place a little bit later, as distinct from the fictional writing, the ancient epics, or the stories in a chivalric tradition that had gone before. This is the the thing that Scott Black really takes issue with, doesn't he, in Without the Novel, his book. He has quite an interesting way of describing it, I think. He calls the romance the novel's guilty secret. Yeah, it's quite lovely, isn't it? Absolutely, that's right. In classics, you're taught that the first novel is Daphne and Chloe. It is a romance uh, and it is sort of chivalric. Uh, you could also say it was a bit realist, I suppose. It seems very odd, this idea that you have to apply realism to something which is made up. Exactly. And I think Scott Black picks up on that. Margaret Doody, uh, famously in 1996, wrote her absolutely scandalous and rather thrilling book where she said the true, it was called The True Story of the Novel, and she put it exactly back with texts like Daphne and Chloe right back in the classical era. And she said, why isn't the novel starting here? Why are we talking about Robinson Crusoe? So, yes, absolutely. So Scott Black says, I mean, he kind of throws all the chips up in the air. So it's a sort of adventurous thought experiment that he's got there saying the story of the novel should be wider and weirder than we wanted. And so he 
he takes the definition of the novel to be something which is very realist, uh, which is all about presenting the actual world as we actually see it with real people doing real things. And he says, well, that's what the definition of the novel is. But there were people falling in love before that. So it is quite a big romantic uh, reading, Scott Black's is. Walter Scott, for example, he was particularly keen on this distinction, wasn't he? A romance and a novel. And indeed, some novelists have actually preferred the term. I'm just wondering whether the distinction is helpful, whether it's worth preserving. In Italian, for example, it's the same word. We have one word for the novel. It's the romance, and the same in French, the roman. So it's like, it seems like a particularly English concern somehow. Yes, and, and this is what Scott Black doesn't like, because, of course, the trouble with bringing in the, the term novel and assuming we're talking about some form of realism is that well, it get, all gets rather alarming and material then, and you might have to start talking about things like politics and worrying things like inequalities and injustices and oppressions and things like that. So, particularly with Captain Singleton, which is the Defoe uh, novel, which I also looked at in this bundle with an uh, interesting new reprint of it, lots of these cameras recipe books suggest ways of looking at the novel, new, new angles of vision on the novel, but um, none of the five books I reviewed in this bundle have a formula that covers uh, Captain Singleton by Daniel Defoe, which, interestingly and alarmingly, is about uh, injustice and oppression. Captain Singleton is a pirate figure. Uh, in the first part of the novel, it tromps across Africa, picking up all the gold and ivory that he can snaffle from the people that live there, essentially. <laughs> Going, thank you very much, this nice gold crown, I'll have that. The idea that because you can take things from other people, you do. So th there's a whole framework about colonialism and imperialism that starts being alarming when you start saying well the novel is not all about actually nor really isn't all about love and romance and young ladies getting carried away reading novels in the boudoir at home in the 18th century it's the simple fact that the the, the ingredients in the stew and oh you know when you make a stew at home it never never tastes exactly the same does it from one time to the next well it's a bit like that with all with critics looking at the history of the novel everybody you know puts their own bit of flavoring in and it's it's extraordinary that you know we it's going to be very hard ever to reach a consensus about what really made the novel because there's so many stories about it is it possible that that calling it a novel and putting the distinction between the romance or an adventure and the novel is an attempt to make it sort of respectable and serious and sort of proper oh absolutely yes this is what writers like defoe and samuel richardson have a really really close eye on in the 18th century so you almost always get some kind of preface in these early 18th century novels you almost always get some kind of preface which says Actually, this is a real document. Even the most outrageously ridiculous mm. novels, like uh, Horace Walpole's Castle of Otranto, start by saying, oh, this is a found manuscript, and I've just edited it, you know. And honestly, it's true. It's, and so they, you get these hysterical prefaces uh, demanding the truth, the, 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 the authenticity of these narratives, at the very point where the word novel comes in and, and indicates their untruth. And that's a whole interesting, another collection of... What do we call it? And how do we differentiate between what is absolute fantasy? Because, of course, the romance is the chivalry that you spoke about. Have impossible things happen. And then, and then you do get this other kind of story, which is desperately keen to establish itself as in and of everyday life. And there's a, there's a really clear sense, especially in the actual 18th century as opposed to the long 18th century, of 
people trying things out. They're trying to appeal to this is a true story, but then they are dabbling in magical realism. You can tell that it's something that's really taking form and being tried out. It was a time of experimentation. There's a touch of that in one of the books that you do look into, Hilary Haven's uh, Revising the 18th Century Novel. It sounds a bit like the literary equivalent of pulling someone's pants down in public, but you can see writers trying something out and going, oh, no, that's not quite what I'm wanting to achieve in this particular novel, so I'll take that out. Absolutely. The, the really amusing thing I found in the Hilary Haywood's novel was was the desperate uh, lengths that Samuel Richardson went to stop female readers falling in love with the raped Lovelace in Clarissa. So, <laughs> so you've got to really police your novel because you don't want you know young women falling in love with the with the wicked rake. You know, of course this won't do, and we can't have this. So yes, there is there's a desperate sense of writers scrabbling to find out what's acceptable, what's going to sell and what's acceptable. Classic story here is, is that of, of the general public becoming the patron. So in the 17th century, aristocrats determined in a sense what was written and what was published. And there wasn't much published. And then I love the fact that you bring up the experiment point here because it was so exciting and I think it started and in a sense the novel happens in the 18th century one way of saying looking at it is is that this wonderful watershed moment of 1695 which boringly is all about the lapse of the licensing act and before everyone goes to sleep it was actually the most exciting thing that has ever happened in the history of literature I promise you so in 1695 in Britain nowhere else but in Britain the licensing act was allowed to lapse so books were no longer having to be subject to pre-publication censorship which meant that this is where the floodgates open. This is why you will sometimes hear 18th century uh, literary historians talking about um, the print explosion. It didn't really all blow up. But what happens is it's extraordinary because now suddenly there are many more printing presses, there are booksellers opening up, and there are empty shelves waiting to have things put on them. What do people want? What which, do people want to read? Which was, of course, an extraordinary land of opportunity all of a sudden. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And uh, people often use a comparison of the rise of the internet. It was a a step change in how you could lay information, how you could lay stories, how you could lay uh, culture before the public and what what they would like, what they would want to read in the 18th century, you know, in the 18th century where basically everything starts, not just the novel, but history, biography, music scores, DIY books. There's a kind of marvellous soup of literature periodicals start here and the, the story of how the periodical uh, feeds into the rise of the novel and and the, the theater and the drama feeds into the rise of the novel it's just the ingredient it's, it's this mighty river you know with all of these tributaries and suddenly people are finding their feet and using satire and romance and throwing them all together in this melting pot and then something called realism and and so you do get these extraordinary different interpretation. I mean, Hilary Haven's looking at the way that writers revised their work and kept on going back to it and changing things and what would be acceptable and what wouldn't. And then you get you get a very material argument. Melissa Gantz saying that saying that the marriage Hardwick's Marriage Act of 1753 really effectively uh, changed fiction because fiction started being about things to do with marriage and what wasn't and wasn't allowed. So it seems the event of the 18th century can be skewed or looked at sideways and, and people can say, oh, did this affect? Did anything in this flurry of, of, of recent studies here surprise you? Did, it, did anything really make you look at things differently? 
I think that the Herschel book did. The, the, Born Yesterday, Stephanie Inslee Herschel's inexperience and the early realist novel. I found that really, really quite exciting to read because it did something slightly different from everybody else. It threw the doors open in a wider and more interesting way because it, I think it revised one of the old shibboleths of criticism, which is that the novel is also a Bildung's roman. The novel is also a story of a young person's development. And we're used to that story from the 19th century. And people have, you know, back-engineered that into the, eight, into the 18th century. said, so, oh, there are a number of stories in the 18th century. Fanny Burney's Evelina, you know, so influential on Jane Austen. Fanny Burney's Evelina is a Bildungsroman. Uh, and Stephanie Hirschenau comes along and says, well, actually, I don't, I don't actually think that's true. And that's a great kind of criticism, isn't it? When somebody takes a, a commonplace and says, well, hang on a minute, just wait, wait a second, let me run away with this a bit. Is this so? And then she makes this, this lovely argument about these early novels actually being predicated on producing pictures of adolescents, you know, reproducing the adolescent, the innocent, the naive character who doesn't learn anything. But during the process of their not learning anything, we, the readers, learn a great deal. So is it the sense that we're always encouraged to think about a narrative arc and how they change or that old thing of going on a journey, but actually they don't. They exist in this sort of supra realm and stay the same, but our understanding of what's happening to them. So we're the ones that go on the narrative arc. Is that the point? Yes, it absolutely is that. It, it's actually delightful because what she wants to stress above all is the sense of possibility for these young people, that we're not closing down and saying this was their trajectory. <laughs> uh, we, don't, we, don't, you know, we don't say that. We say uh, they're still all, the, the world is still all before them at the end of their of the novel you know they haven't the story isn't finished now so there's a sense of she imports this lovely sense of possibility of things being different into the early novel which and going back to what we were saying about uh, the novels as exciting pl places of experiment that kind of fits in um one of the things that comes across um nicely in your piece it's very gratifying i think especially as we started out on this podcast talking about Daniel Defoe, one of the gratifying things is to see Francis Burney emerging as such a strong influence, such a strong player in all of this. What's the, what's the kind of consensus on her work here? Everyone was sort of vaguely aware of her as a precursor to Austen because, you know, you had to love somebody who influenced Jane Austen. But it wasn't until, I guess, the feminist scholars started looking into her work properly that we, we, we discovered this wonderful writer who, who's actually as witty as perceptive, as outrageous, as, as quite scurrilously rude and preposterously full of rather surprising practical jokes and slightly cruel things in, in a way that sort of would surprises most modern readers of Fanny Burney. But she, she was a voice, a really strong voice. It takes you through her, her, her novels with her, with her protagonists in a way that people really like to read that as the scholar, 18th century feminist scholars particularly really enjoy reading because her, her protagonists are real, you know, she has the conventions that she must obey and she herself was quite a timid character. But the very fact that, Dr. that Samuel Johnson absolutely loved her writing, you know, tells you something. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not legitimating her by by calling by calling on a male critic. But I mean, Samuel Johnson was the great critic of the 18th century, and for him to to haul her out in front of all of the male writers of the century uh, means that there's something in there that we're still discovering. I suppose that sort of leads us 
meanderingly towards another of the books that you review. It, it's a new edition of Tristram Shandy with a fantastic sounding introduction by Judith Hawley, who was incidentally just a few weeks ago writing for us about coffee. <laughs> yes, I read that. It was fab. But so, I mean, what, what new insight do we get on this? You know, we, I think we probably think we know a lot about Tristram Shandy, how difficult it must be to bring something new to the table. Yes, it is. And when you look at it, uh, when you look at, the, at this edition of Tristram Shandy and put it aside the edition of Captain Singleton, the notes look quite terse. But Judith Hawley's got, a, got, got an impeccable eye, and I think she's been exactly right. Where her edition really wins is that she does have a brilliant background in knowing about 18th century science and particularly medicine. So in her notes, she, she can steal a march on, on many other editions of Tristram Shandy because she can explain, although I know that explaining jokes isn't always a rather fraught business, but, but if I can put it like this, her knowledge helps us to see uh, much more clearly how clever Lawrence Stern is being in his parodies and jokes and attacks on the medical profession, on scientific uh, ideas at the time, quasi-scientific ideas at the time, natural philosophy. And she's got this wonderfully sharp eye for this thing called tradition, uh, the tradition of learned wit, which is another strand leading into the history of the novel. Writers at play, writers having fun, particularly scholars having fun and mocking and deriding their very bread and butter scholarship we can see it all over Tristram Shandy, the, the mock authorities that he invokes and the fun that he has puncturing pompous diction of these kinds of writers. The satirical mechanics of Stern's buccaneering among noses, circumcision and groins is how you put it. Yes, exactly. No, well, 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 certainly it's a bawdy book and most, deli- most delightfully so. And some of the other writers, Amelia Dale has some fun with, with Tristram Shandy and masculinities in Tristram Shandy. But there are some rather extraordinary things. I mean, the episode where the hot chestnut falls into the opening of the breeches of the gentleman <laughs> at the posh dinner is one of the very, was one of the very finest pieces, uh, set pieces in all bawdy literature, let me tell you, and also extremely <laughs> painful. And there's a lot of pain for men in Tristram Shandy, which is quite interesting. interesting. Makes a change, shall we say. <laughs> well, yes, it does. It's especially in the context of women, of anxiety about women in fiction, you know, about what, what it will do to young women to read these stories, to read these romances, which is, as you know, I'm sure rife in 18th century commentary about novels. You know, how, will, how will young women be led astray by reading these stories about uh, elopement particularly? One of the ways that, that women were led astray was that they were led into a, a life of writing. Uh, you've been on the the podcast talking about Charlotte Lennox before, but you end this piece on the reissue of a largely forgotten story by uh, Jane Porter, Tadeusz of Warsaw, um, and that's from 1803. It was a great success at the time. It sort of more or less disappeared. Is it? Is it worth rescuing? I really liked it. Yes, I really do. I really think it is. I mean, it's got it's got form. I mean, Scott and Thackeray both were indebted to it and knew that they were indebted to it. And it's got uh, that from the, the it's got the Bernie thread of social satire, particularly about you know pretentious society people, and and also taking from Fanny Bernie, particularly from Fanny Bernie's Evelina, this this opposition between the between the wicked, the wicked aristocrats, the corrupt aristocracy, and the and the worthy worthy middle classes who behave uh, in civilized ways and have to somehow corrupt a corrupt aristocracy has to be brought down to earth 
it's a strange kind of mix of social satire and romantic nationalism, which is another whole story, was nationalism suddenly happens at the end of the uh, 18th century. Yes, it's a great story, and, and hooray for Jane Porter, who, again, another female writer who sort of slipped off the back of the lorry when uh, she should have been up there. Driving the lorry from the sounds of it. Well, Min Wilde, thank you very much. That sounds like a recommendation, so we're going to, we're going to leave it on that. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Declan Ryan admits he's been hooked on boxing since watching Saturday Night Fights with his father in the 1990s. If he ever examined the hurt business, as it is sometimes known, it was from an angle of moral queasiness rather than aesthetics, he says, but more recently he's been thinking about it differently. I've come to realise, he tells us, that many of the things I'm most interested in when it comes to writing overlap with something fundamental to boxing. So, to find out what might link Chris Eubank, say, with the poets Ian Hamilton and Matthew Arnold, and to look into the history of an 18th century boxer known as the Fighting Jew, we asked Declan Ryan to join us. Declan, hello, and many thanks for talking to us. Hi, no, uh, thanks, thanks for having me. Can you tell us first, what are the things that overlap between writing and boxing? It, it seems to be the case that most of the writers I'm most drawn to, they often tend to be 
interested in this idea of what happens when you give it your all and, and it's not quite enough or you have to rebuild or come back in new conditions. There's a, a writer called Jonathan Rendell who wrote a lot about boxing and he said somewhere that the, the real test of life is coming back in new conditions and it's, it's something that I'm quite interested in. Hamilton and Arnold had that in common as well, this idea of having two or three different lives and different phases of life and, and reassessing the point of what they were doing constantly. I suppose there's, I mean, there's something of Beckett's try again, fail again, fail yeah, better about yeah. it. You can only achieve something truly remarkable in any medium by overcoming the obstacles in some creative way. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. And also that idea of of there being some sort of failure maybe built in into the thing to start with anyway, that you can never quite do what you want to do and you've just got to sort of learn how to work around that lack of success on whatever terms you might you might frame that. And I suppose with boxing it's just played out in a very literal sense because you get knocked over and you have to get back up again and pull yourself together. Yeah, that's exactly it, yeah. Um, and can you tell us how you first got interested in Daniel Mendoza, who was the, the boxer whose story you look into in your piece? Well, it was complete um, happenstance, basically. Um, I was teaching Queen Mary this year, doing a bit of poetry teaching. And on campus, there's a, a plaque to Mendoza, and my eye was drawn to it because it stood out a bit. It was him in sort of a little fighting pose. And it, it turned out that basically he'd originally been buried on, on that site, and then in, in the 70s, the graves were moved, and, and so he wasn't there anymore. But the plaque was a sort of mea culpa, I think, as much as anything from the organisation to his memory. And, and so they, they've got this plaque there, and it was unveiled by Henry Cooper, of course, which was, is something itself. I just kept walking past this plaque, and I was interested in it. And after a little cursory bit of research, it turned out that sort of happened again, happenstance. Um, his biography came out last year, the first one written about him. And so I was able to do a bit of bit of digging into it. And, and it was a really interesting story, um, I thought, in general. And I got in touch with, with the author, Wynne Weldon, and we had a bit back and forth about. He's, he's a fascinating character in, in many ways. Lots of firsts, or at least claims to lots of firsts in, in his time. I was at Queen Mary some years back myself, so I must have walked past that plaque countless times. I, I certainly remember that there's a small cemetery plot in the middle of the campus, which I, I gather is a small part of what was once a much bigger one, yeah, mostly exactly Sephardi it. graves. That's it, yeah. I think, I think the only ones that are left on campus, from what I can tell now, there was a Victorian extension to it. So I think all the original pre-1851s were moved out before the current site but but yeah that's it it's, it's a weird little weird little thing on campus this square of a graveyard I'm not sure if it's a warning or a it's something anyway you know yeah. but, um, and there's the tragedy of it being that they the, the graves were removed including Mendoza's and, and now they, they've all sort of been interred in a, in a mass grave somewhere in Essex. From what I can tell it's not particularly well kept up either there was a few other people who were somewhat prominent or at least their progeny became pro I think Disraeli's granddad is in in the same plight and, and various other people but yeah Mendoza was part of the the graves that were removed a slightly sticky ending you spoke to his biographer obviously for this piece how did he come to boxing uh, also why did he insist on doing it bare knuckle it was it was a pretty raucous kind of sport at the time I mean it's, it's if anything it now these days is quite genteel compared to what he was doing he came to boxing really by mistake or by chance, as he did a lot of things from what it, it, it seems to be. He was 16 and he was, he seems to be a slightly hot-headed character, it's fair to say, euphemistically. And he was working as a sort of apprentice or an equivalent role. And a porter insulted him and insulted his boss. And, and I think it, it, came to, it came to blows. And Mendoza, even though he was only 16 at the time, gave this much older, bigger fellow a bit of a hiding. And I think from that, it, he then just got this reputation as being a bit of a bit of a brawler. And, and so then he, he took it a bit more seriously and it became a profession rather than just this kind of way of expressing his 
I mean, he started doing it, as you say, in a, in a kind of, you know, a brawl, but then he, he took it very seriously, didn't he? And he became known as the father of scientific boxing. He really did pioneer a lot of the things that, you know, came to define the sport. And, and he was quite important in taking it into this new phase. It was still bare knuckle in his time and, and it, it still wouldn't have looked very much like what we think of as boxing now. But he wrote a how-to guide called The Art of Boxing which I think he self-published, but that's no reflection on the quality of his editorial work, I don't think. And he had his own fighting school, and people used to come from, I think, relatively far and wide to learn how to how to fight like him. Because he, he sort of pioneered this style, it was a bit more brain than brawn, I think that was basically the, the gist of it. He, he took a few techniques from fencing and, and a few other things, and so he wasn't just windmilling away, I think it was a bit more to do with trying to use other people's strength against them and size against them and and making it a bit more of a sort of skilled martial art rather than just a kind of just bashing people yeah (laughs) Yeah. because you because you say in it that that in his book in his how-to guide because that's in that's published isn't it at the end of the biography yeah it's a little appendix at the end yeah. yeah and he says the first principle to be established in boxing is to be perfectly a master of equilibrium of the body which it's an incredibly difficult thing to do, as you say in your piece, that's easier said than done. Um, it is, it is. Did he kind of elevate it, do you think, an art form or make it more professional? Did he have that kind of impact on it? He did. I think certainly in terms of the style, his own life wasn't really an example of professionalism particularly. I think just in terms of the skill that he brought to it, he does seem to have, have brought it on a level. There'd previously been some sort of attempt to write down some rules, but his his kind of scientific approach it, it was a big jump forward and and I think because people saw the success he had even though he was relatively small compared to a lot of his opponents you know as you do in any discipline if someone's doing well at something you, you try and rip them off as much as possible so I think because of that yeah he did have a big impact and I think he wasn't career didn't last all that long and he came back and you know with the inevitable unpleasantness that always follows that I think for a brief time he was he was quite influential and then this written document maybe even not necessarily directly, but through his influence by just some of the methods that got widely picked up. He, he is a, a real kind of forefather of some of the, the methods that probably are still being used today in terms of, of leverage and stance and some of those sorts of things. Do you have an impression of whether he was in control of his talents and his career? Because I've just been doing some very preliminary research into Primo Carnera, the ambling out. So he was he was the world heavyweight in I think the 30s and when you look at someone like his career and could possibly make a more general point about when someone comes from humble origins and displays these remarkable talents uh, especially in something like boxing it's very easy for them to be kind of stolen from themselves appropriated or made to work for someone else co-opted that's definitely part of it I think he, he ended up because of the nature of the sport at the time it seemed to be a kind of a folly of of some quite well-heeled types I mean there was lots of patronage from people as you know as high ranking as as the prince of wales at the time and and so there was a lot of these aristocrats and i think he ran with that set for a bit and i think that's probably why he didn't keep much of his money for very long i think he was he was probably quite impressionable i think he liked the attention he liked the getting and spending a bit too much i think so no i think most of his decisions were bad ones from what i can tell from reading from reading the book and from talking to to win almost heroically bad there's a, a bit of that george best element the kind of where did it all go wrong he wasn't in control of of most things and and that can be seen, I think, also in his sort of flailing around trying to make money in other ways. There's a bit of a Del Boy aspect at times to him. He's sort of constantly setting up business ventures that, that go nowhere or that go badly. And he's been in and out of debtors' prison. And his children are, are sort of being arrested and, and sent off variously. And it seems a bit chaotic, I think, the whole time. And sometimes I think there was probably 
good intentions behind it. He was trying to make use of some of the money he set up these, you know, the, the fighting school and things like that. So there was occasional moments of, of lucidity, possibly. But but no, he does seem to have made lots of, of quite bad decisions. And, and possibly that could be down to being taken out of his element and, and being picked up by these people with far, you know, far, far more resources and, and means and things yeah. and sort of his nickname was the fighting Jew, wasn't it? And there was this catchphrase, you see, it became a catchphrase, right? We're going to yeah, settle it. Yeah. We're going to sort this out a la Mendoza, which yeah, presumably exactly, meant, yeah. you know, uh, beating each other up. What do, do you think that, that, that he might have helped to shift some of the anti-Semitic stereotypes that were around at the time? You're always reluctant to make any grand, too grand a claim for anyone, really. But I think there was at least an aspect of that. Jews had only been back in, in England for about a century at this point when he was born. And, and I think there's always horrible tropes about anything but I think it seems to be the case from the book and, and from the research that I did at the time that one of the stereotypes seemed to be that the kind of the Jews who'd come into Britain you know they were kind of meek and and, and all of this sort of you know nonsense that was that was being said to have a, a quite prominent boxer coming from that community I think it did help to shift things a little bit it made it clear that this is a much more nuanced and and 3D sort of person that there isn't this kind of stereotyped thing going on so I think he did have that and there, there was an aspect where part of his downfall maybe mixing with with these kind of regency circles also there was a prominence to him as well which which may have helped with with that sort of thing he met the current king and he met the prince of wales and and he was he was a celebrity in, in whatever term we might want to take that it's remarkable when you hear the story when you read uh, your piece and and that the, the biography only appeared last year really he a few times while I was reading it, I started disbelieving things. And some of the claims that are made, we probably can't necessarily take all of them. But but it's possible that he's one of the first, if not the first, sports people to bring out an autobiography. And it's also possible that one of his fights was the first to have a, a kind of paid-for gate. And, you know, lots of these kind of wild, wild firsts that were associated with him. And even if only some of them are true, you know, it's, he's, a, he's a really important, interesting figure for those reasons. And he also, for slightly more modern and comedic reasons um he's a sort of distant relative of peter sellers apparently he used to have have lots of pictures of mendoza in the backgrounds of some of his films i think the pink panther has got pictures of him in the background so yeah there's a little link there to to slightly more eccentric that's a nice thing to look out for you talked about him being a celebrity and then how so he did have quite a height to fall from really he met the king and he he hung out with the prince of wales and he made money but he did fall from grace and again which is another sadly familiar story with modern boxing how do you think he managed the descent maybe not terribly well from what you said not terribly well no there was a great deal of unpleasantness I think it's one of those one of those things where because he was such a volatile character um, he happened to be you know very good at boxing he happened to be quite a pioneer of this style but I think yeah there was a kind of a slightly dissolute element to him, and and yeah, he, on the way down, he ended up as you know, as is so so familiar with, with so many modern fighters. He fought on for too long. He came back long after he should have stopped coming back, and and trying to you know trying to win money through fighting. And he was a much diminished figure at that point. And and there was also a, a brief period of running a pub, and he was breaking up riots at other points. And and there was all sorts of of ways of trying to trying to earn some money, often through slightly physical approaches. But I think. Part of the problem was also 
there was this weird thing of, of trying to cultivate this public persona that he had. But there was also a sort of darker history. He'd been transported at one point, we think, or, or Wynne thinks in the book, to Africa at one point for, for an early legal infraction. And there were various things that he didn't want the public to find out. And so there was a bit of a balancing act. He fell from favour and he fell from grace. Boxing itself, I think, was in and out of favour and, and much to do with various whims. And so I think he... At certain points, he rode a wave when it was popular, and, and at other points, he became neglected because it, it, it disappeared from view. It coincided with lots of big historical events, and, and it just it got knocked down a bit in terms of the, the kind of news pecking order. So do you think, then, ultimately, in the end, should how, how should we see him? Do we see him as a, as a great success? Do we see him as a heroic failure, something in between? I mean, heroic failures are things I, I, I tend to be drawn to. I think it's, it's sort of where you draw the line. I mean, the, the impact that he had and the, the legacy that he, he sort of, he built, it shouldn't necessarily be written off or diluted by how it all ended up going. There's definitely moments of, of triumph and, and moments of sort of glory in the life, but there's also lots of, of moments of, of its opposite, kind of squalor and misery. Maybe more interestingly, that it isn't a kind of linear thing as well. There's a real height climbed and then there's this fall. And, and some of the fall... He does still do interesting things when he's doing it. There's lots of ventures and lots of interesting things attempted and, and all of that. It's not just a sort of a complete plummet. There's little little sidelines. And he does lots of theatrical exhibitions and, and visits. And it's an interesting life. But but yeah, I think for what he ended up bequeathing to the sport or, or something, I think he probably just about comes out on the heroic side of, of things in the balance, if not personally, then at least professionally. Well, we can't ask for any more than that. No, <laughs> it's, no. It's a, it's, none of us can. <laughs> no, exactly. And it's a, really, it's a really fascinating story. Many thanks for giving us an insight into it. That is all we have time for this week. All that remains is for us to thank Min Wilde and Declan Ryan. Don't forget to pick up a copy of the TLS, whether in print or digitally. In this week's issue, you will find all of the pieces we mentioned earlier, as well as many others. We'll be back next week, of course, to consider the role of friendship in Beethoven's life and work, Marianne Anderson's famous performance at the Lincoln Memorial in 1939, when she had to perform there, outside, in a mink coat with a grand piano, because she was not allowed inside the main venue, run by the Daughters of the American Revolution, because she was black. And we will also remember the master of the bass saxophone, Adrian Rellini, and look into the miserable side of grunge, which is saying something, via a recent biography of Mark Lanigan. Yes, there is a music focus, so join us for that next week. For now, though, from Lucy and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.